We rejoice with you all this evening as you sing so beautifully. This afternoon we did not go to Valdesia because of the rain. And my son said about 4.30, wow, Sundays are so relaxed. Why don't people come back to Sunday night church? I don't understand. They have the whole day just to sleep and relax. I thought that was a good observation. I would encourage you to make the habit to always make it the Lord's day, not the Lord's 90 minutes. You have 168 hours, and 24 of those are the Lord's day. Uh, The great preacher Robert Murray McShane, who died when he was 29 years old, saw revival He began preaching at 23 years old, and for several years he saw revival in Scotland, and he was accustomed to wake up at 6 in the morning on Sunday and to go to bed at midnight. And he said, the reason I want to go to bed at midnight is I want every minute of the Lord's day that I can get. That's a good good example. And he he had a service in the morning. There's no electricity, so they have a service in the morning. Then he had evangelism in the afternoon. Sometimes they would have an evening service, but not always. And he would spend the evening in reading books, talking with Christian friends, and reading the Bible. And he did that for a number of years until he passed away. What a good example for us. Open your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 28. 1 Chronicles 28. We have come this evening to the last sermon in the life of David. And if you have been here in the Sunday morning worship services, we have been studying David's life, and we are now returning to finish the study of his life here. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. We're going to be studying chapter 28 and 29. And we have one great message to learn from David's life. And that message is that even to the end of his life, the honor of Jehovah controlled him. David is a man consumed with the glory of God. I have no introduction for the sermon tonight. Let's begin. There's two points. What did David do throughout his life? And number two, how did he end his life? What did David do throughout his life? He's probably 17 years old. If you want, you can run through your pages of your Bible, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The first time we see David... 16 or 17, maybe 18 years old, just a teenager. When David is out taking care of the sheep, and when they call the whole town together, they don't call David. And when Samuel says, call all of your sons, they don't call David. So he's neglected and overlooked, but he's okay with that. He's used to writing psalms and singing Because when he's that young, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him in chapter 16, verse 13. Twenty years later, in 2 Samuel 5, verse 10, 
Before he's 40 years old, the Bible will say, and the Spirit of the Lord came on him again. And it was on him from that day forward. He's a young boy. Just a few years later, he kills Goliath at maybe 18, 19, maybe 20. He kills the champion who is frightening the entire country. In 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47, he said, I do this so that all the earth would know there is a God in Israel. Do you see what he's doing? Even as a young man, he's overwhelmed, not with being seen, but with the glory of God in all the earth. At 20 years old, just after killing Goliath, he's showered with a position of authority, with money. He's now a general or a captain in Saul's army. He's been paid greatly. He doesn't stay at his house anymore. It would be like a young man who at 20 years old gets a job making 30000 a month. It doesn't happen very much. How would you feel? Would it go to your head? Not with David. Because three times in 1 Samuel 18, it says David behaved himself wisely. He controlled his tongue. He didn't give in to pride. He was wise, even as a young man with great power. In fact, from that time onward, for the next 50 years, he's going to write 79 psalms. Do you know how many that is? If you add up the pages, it's about as much as what the Apostle John wrote. But David did it before he saw the Lord Jesus. David gave some of the clearest teaching about Jesus before he ever saw Jesus. Starting from the time he's a young man, going the whole way through until he's an old man. At 25, these are approximate ages, at approximately 25 years old, David fights for God's people in submission to Saul and in submission to God. In 1 Samuel 23 verse 5, he's fighting for God's people and think what that means. That means risking your life. He's not a coward who leads his troops from the back. He was leading his troops from the front. We know that because even as an elder man in his 60s, he's still fighting and he's on the front line so much so that his troops have to save him. And they say, no more, no more. You've done this for 40 some years. We don't want you to come fight anymore. At about 25 years old, David is found in the wilderness in 1 Samuel 24 verse 6. 23 verse 16, and yet he is still devoted to God. He's lost his big job, his beautiful flat, his nice car. He's kicked out. They're trying to kill him. The government that hired him is trying to kill him, even though he's the greatest hero in the government. He's still devoted to God. He's not bitter or angry. Look at what's happened to me. He goes on. At 25 years old, imagine this kind of character in a 25-year-old. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 6, Saul is delivered right into his hand. He could cut off his head. David knows how to cut off heads. And he could do that to Saul, his great enemy. He's already been anointed to be king. And all of his friends say, do it. And David does not give in to peer pressure. He's not some kind of weak, pusillanimous man from today. Oh, whatever my wife says, I do that. 
Whatever my friends say, whatever the culture says, no, David stands up and rejects his friends who are urging him to kill Saul. He rejects the easy path, not once, but 1 Samuel 26, verse 9, just a few months later. I wonder what's going on in David's mind when he says, I had the character to resist killing Saul once, but the second time, the Bible even says, God sent asleep to put the whole army asleep. He certainly could have killed Saul. And his men are urging him, take off his head, take off his head. The one guy says, I'll do it for you, and I won't hit him two times. And David says, back off. As a 25-year-old or a 27-year-old man, at 30 years old, David has a bout with depression. You would too if you've been running from a maniac for 10 years. The maniac who hired you and for no good reason fired you and took away all of your blessings that you had earned with your own hands. And for 10 years you've been forced to live in poverty and now it turns out When you come back to your home, your home is burning and ransacked. Your wife is taken, your children are taken, all of your property is taken, and all of your friends' property is taken, and then your friends blame you. And 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 says, depression came on him. David was distressed because the people spoke about stoning him but David encouraged his heart what in the Lord he's 30 is that not a man that you can look up to he goes on at 30 years old because he didn't know this but as he was chasing those enemy soldiers to get his wife and his children back at the same time his great enemy was being killed Saul. Within a few days, Saul is dead, and David, my life has changed. I've gone from being a miserable, depressed, attacked criminal on the run. I'm going to be changed. They're going to make me king. I'm going to be the most powerful man in the world now, in in the country now. But when he has a chance to bring vengeance on his enemies, he rather shows love to them. Remember that in 2 Samuel chapter 1 when the man came up and said, I killed Saul just for you. David says, why did you kill God's anointed? And has the man killed? He doesn't take his chance to revenge and say, ha, that's it. He got what he deserved. He showed love for his enemies. He composed a psalm for Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel chapter 1. He's 35 years old. And again, some men come and say, we killed off all of Saul's house. And David has those men killed. Why did you murder innocent men in their beds? Do you think I'm a murderer and I'm going to support that? I'm a just judge. You had no right to take those men's lives. But they they were Saul's children. Don't you hate Saul? I love justice. Those men have to die. Because they killed Saul's children unjustly. 35 years old, 40 years old. David is now king over all Israel. He returns the ark to Jerusalem. You'll remember this. He gathers 30,000 people together. A national holiday, not for Women's Day, not for political gain. 
He gathers them together for the honor of God. And you might remember that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. God kills Uzzah because Uzzah touches the ark when it's shaking. And as R.C. Sproul taught us, he said, Uzzah thought that his hand was cleaner than the dirt. But the dirt was doing what God made it to do. It was being dirt. The hand was attached to a sinner. And when David saw that Uzzah was killed, he doesn't know what to do. And then over the next three months, he goes back and studies Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he finds the verse that says you have to carry the ark on poles. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't say, well, if that's the way you are, you can keep it. No. What did I do? He searches himself to see what he did wrong. He finds the answer in the Bible. He humbly admits quickly repents and he comes back and gathers another 30,000 people for another national holiday. He's not embarrassed. Well, oh, you want to have another holiday? Who do you want to kill this time, David? He puts up with the jokes and the mockery. He overlooks it and says, I'm honoring God by bringing the ark to Jerusalem. They did do it that day. And even though his wife dishonored him, he overlooked it and said, I serve the Lord. I don't serve my wife. I don't serve my kids. I'm devoted to Jehovah. Again, he's 40 years old, maybe just a few months after when he moved the ark. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, it says, God gave David rest everywhere from all his enemies. And now what does he do? He makes a plan. He draws up blueprints himself for how to build the temple. And he tells his prophet, Nathan, Nathan, I want to build a beautiful temple to honor Jehovah. Nathan says, do it. That night, Jehovah speaks to Nathan and says, no, no. Go back and tell him, you're not going to build me a house. I am going to build you a house. He says the word house six times in 2 Samuel 7. God says, you thought to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. You thought to make me great with a beautiful house. I'm going to build you an eternal house. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 15, we find out that that house is, in part, the church. It's not completely the church. It is, in part, the church. And what God is doing, saving people. And just look at our assembly. The people that are being saved. Almost every single one of you is a first-generation Christian. Saved within the last year, two, three, four, five, six, or eight years. God is doing that. He's still saving people. Shonas and Vendas and Zulus and Tsongas. Who else is he going to save here when we all get fired up for evangelism? Who else is he going to save in 2020? We'd like to baptize at Easter. Who else will he save? He's still building it up in answer to 2 Samuel 7. When Jehovah said... You'll not build me a house. I will build you a house. And what does David say? If you know the verse, say it with me. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? That's our verse for the month. If you don't know it, then that's because we're reviewing our Sunday school time. David is humble even at 40 years old. He doesn't... How would you respond? 
Oh, thank you. What a blessing. David doesn't say thank you. He says it can't be true. Me? Me? A great sinner? I'm a no one. You've got to pick someone else. I don't deserve this. His humility at 40 years old. He's still 40 or approximately there. And he remembers his promise to Jonathan. He promised Jonathan, his dear friend, I will honor all of your children. He finds one child left. What's his name? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. He's lame. He can't walk. He's hiding out for fear that David might hurt him. David finds him. He saves him. He exalts him and honors him as a picture of sola gratia, grace alone. Between 40 and 50 years old, David continues fighting. 2 Samuel 8 and 2 Samuel 10. It lists all the the countries and the cities that he conquered when they tried to attack Israel. David's 55 years old and he brings retribution to the Gibeonites. David has lived a life, not one good thing, not two good things. He didn't persevere for six months. He persevered over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. He's still going. He's devoted to God. I made a list and I marked it in my Bible. You could count the way I just did of David's honor to God. Or you could look at his Psalms. Or you could count all of the references to his humility. Let me just list these. 1 Samuel 16, 11, he's a lowly shepherd. 1 Samuel 18, 18, he says, Who am I to marry the king's daughter? Well, you're the man that killed Goliath. No, no, who am I? 1 Samuel 24, 14, if you know it, say it with me. After whom does the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. After a flea. 1 Samuel 24, 14. 1 Samuel 25, 33. He accepts a rebuke from a woman. First, uh, 2 Samuel 7, 18. Who am I to receive this covenant? 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. He admits when he sinned. 2 Samuel 15, 26. He accepts pain from the hand of God. The next verse we're going to memorize is when he says... What have I to do with you, oh, you sons of Zariah? Perhaps God wants this man to curse me. Maybe God has said, curse David. So let him do it. Don't punish him. Because maybe God wants me to suffer. That's amazing. 2 Samuel 16, 10. He's 60 years old when he said that. 2 Samuel 23, 17. That's the story that we covered a few weeks ago. When the mighty men fought through the well, fought through to get the water to bring it back to David. And what does David do? Pours it out on the ground. I can't take this love. You love me too much. Can you imagine a leader here in this town or in this country telling his followers, stop it. You love me too much. David says that. Don't love. No, no, that's not right. You should only love God that way. You've got too much devotion to me. Change it. After those men just risked their lives. 2 Samuel 24 verse 10. He admits again his sin. Or we could look at David's greatness by looking at the way he responds to his sin. Have you noticed this? 
Ironically, David's sins are recorded in the Bible so that we can see how great he is. My Muslim friends say, Ah, David falling to Bathsheba? What is that? You don't understand. That's recorded in the Bible so that we will see again how great this man is. Because what does he do when he sins? He repents. He's 55 years old with Bathsheba, but he repents. He turns away. He gives another 15 years of godliness. He numbers the people in 2 Samuel 24. We covered that, what, three weeks ago? When he numbers the people in 2 Samuel 24, he repents. He gives 600 shekels of gold. That's several million rand. The man says, no, 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 keep your money. David says, I will not keep my money. I sinned and I must pay. Take it and I'll sacrifice. I'll give cows and bulls and I myself will humble myself. The sins of David put in front of God's people a perfect model of repentance. So I just want you to see David's religion affected his physical life. It affected his intellectual life. He writes Psalms. It affected his spiritual life. He models humility. So, so the message, we haven't even gotten to 1 Chronicles 28 because what we're doing is showing you that David's life was consumed with one thing. Can anyone tell me what it is? What? God. That's it. His whole devotion, his entire focus was on God. This devotion is remarkable. From 15 to 65. 60 years, 50 years of honor and glory to God. But at the end of his life, there's a grand finale. And that's what I want to show you. I I listened this week to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Have you ever heard Beethoven's wonderful symphonies? The Ninth Symphony is, is that song. Maybe you've heard it. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. That's where we get that song from. It's Beethoven's writing. And the last two minutes of that 75-minute symphony, most symphonies are 20 minutes or 30 minutes long. This is the last symphony Beethoven's going to write. He's going deaf. And before they even played the symphony, he was entirely deaf. He got up there and led the symphony, looking at the, the musicians. He couldn't even hear the people behind him cheering. They were all on their feet, cheering and clapping their hands, and he couldn't hear it. And famously, one of the women came out of the choir and turned Beethoven around because he was so deaf, he couldn't hear the people cheering for him. Because the last two minutes of the Ninth Symphony, you've got to listen to it. It is amazing. It's hard to listen to it sitting down. It makes you want to stand up. It makes you want to run and jump and fight and sing. That's what we see here in 1 Chronicles 28. It's like ending a novel with four pages of exclamation points. I got that from Robert Greenberg. This is David's life. It has a bring you to your feet conclusion. If you're reading this book, when you get to 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, something in you should feel like a wave that just reached its highest point. You feel... 
I've just got to clap. I've got to cheer. I've got to stand in amazement. How could he do this? David just finished his life, possibly 75 years old. And he finishes with glory. Let me make a comment on David's life. The Bible says that David was 30 when he became king. 2 Samuel chapter 3. He's 30 years old when he becomes king. And it says he reigned for 40 years. That's right here. 1 Chronicles 29 verse 27. It says he reigned for 40 years. So you can do the math, right? 30 plus 40. 70 years. But in Second Chron- I'm sorry, in First Chronicles 23, it says he ordained Solomon to be king while he's alive. So it's possible, I think probable, that he lived for a few years after that. That he and Solomon were reigning together. So this is David's reign and there is Solomon's. And it overlaps for a little bit of time. And David is failing. In First Kings chapter 1, First Kings chapter 1 happens before 1 Chronicles 28. So 1 Kings chapter 1 happens and David is sick. He has some kind of sickness where his blood is not circulating. We don't know what it is, but it's probably just old age. You say, well, why would he be so sickly at 70? Many people are strong and vigorous. David's sins are now catching up to him. He lived a godly life, but he also had sin. And God promised Be sure your sin will find you out. And David is now getting old. And his blood won't circulate. And he's cold all the time. And so they bring another woman. Possibly a wife. A girl named Abishag. He already had about eight wives. Maybe this was his ninth. Matthew Henry says. His counselors gave him the girl. Because that's what they would have wanted. But Abishag and David never knew each other as a man and a wife know each other. And David goes on in this sickly condition, failing more and more as the years go by. Until here, 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, this is the last event recorded about David's life. Probably, David and Solomon have been serving together. David has been planning for the temple since he was 40. How many years is that? 30 some years. In 1 Chronicles 22, David speaks to Solomon. The whole chapter, chapter 22 is a whole speech that David gives to Solomon preparing him for the temple. And right here in chapters 28 and 29, David calls together the whole country and he shows us How he ends his life. And it's an ending like the ending of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I want to show you four things about the ending of David's life. First of all, his age. He's at least 70 years old. He's sick. He's tired. This has been building for several years because David was nearly slain by a giant when he's about 65 years old. So maybe the sickness has been growing for five or six or seven years as he's slowly been getting weaker. Solomon has already been crowned king. And instead of the, and even though he's weak, David gathers together the whole country. In chapter 28, verse 1, look down there. There are six groups, seven groups of people that he calls together. Chapter 28, verse 1, the officials of Israel, 
the princes of the tribes, the commanders of the divisions, the commanders of the thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the overseers of all the property, the officials and the mighty men, and the valiant men. David calls all these people together. In chapter 29, verse 20, it appears that the whole country had been gathered together, like David did earlier. As if he's, he's saying, I want to gather everyone together for my final speech. Maybe his counselor said, but David, you're so weak. David, how can you do that? Just call them together. When strength is abundant, a public event is easy. But when you wonder if you can even stand up, when you wonder if your voice can carry, when you're getting tired and cold and feeling aches and pains all day, when you can't control yourself nicely, a big public event is a hard thing to do. But David makes no excuses for being old, for being tired, for being feeble. He makes no excuses for his voice or personal embarrassment. His age does not stand in his way. And it shows one more time that David is devoted to God. Second point, David thinks of the temple rather than his son. David's mind is preoccupied with the temple. Look in verse 2. What does he say in verse 2? Then David the king stood on his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And he goes on to talk only about the ark or about the temple. I want the temple to be honored. The temple was supposed to be the physical monument of God's glory on the earth. No other nation on earth had it. David could not build the temple because he was a man of war. Chapter 28 verse 3. God prepares different men for different jobs. David accepts God's absolute election of himself. In verses 4 and 5 it says, God chose me. God chose Judah. God liked me. Verse 5, God chose Solomon. David's not afraid of election. Verse 6, he says, I know Jehovah has chosen my son. David believes in unconditional election. And he knows that God chose Solomon to build the temple. But everything in David's speech has to do with what? The temple. Verse 10. You're going to build the temple. It's all the temple because God's glory consumes him. And look at verse 8. Now therefore in the sight of all Israel, the congregation of the Lord and the audience of our God... Solomon, keep and seek all the commandments of the Lord your God. Do you see that? Two verbs in verse 8. Solomon, if you want to build the temple, you must be holy. You must be obedient. You must be devoted. God will not accept service to him that is not holy. You say, I built a big church. Are you holy? Our sister here has told us about someone that she knows who built a large church down south in Khaltang. But the man is not faithful to his wife. 
He's not kind and loving. He doesn't support her. In fact, the wife and husband are getting divorced. God is not impressed with your big building. He doesn't care that you've done all these things and given all this money. If you're not holy, he says to Solomon, don't even try to put up a building without obeying all of God's commands. Obey everything. Verse 8. It was already told back in 1 Chronicles 22. Do you remember I told you about that? 1 Chronicles 22 is the private speech that David gave to Solomon. And he told Solomon in private, 1 Chronicles 22 verses 12 and 13, you've got to obey God exactly, completely. David gave Solomon the blueprints in chapter 28 verse 11. David gives him the blueprints because every detail matters. In chapter 28, verse 11, 12, 13, 14, it explains the exact way to build things because the details matter. I was evangelizing someone on Saturday in Valdesia and where we sat at their home, just beside me, a meter away on the ground was a soiled nappy for their baby. Over here where the wife was sitting, as we were doing the Bible study, there was used tissue. All around was filth. David knows the details matter. I want you to work hard. I don't don't ever begrudge someone if they live in a shack. But if there's trash sitting right in front of you that you can pick up, you can change that. Hey, if you're poor, I understand. Uh, One time I was evangelizing in Waterfall in Elam. I went up way on the mountain in the back. And I got to a house where the man and his wife and kids lived in a shack. But they had a shovel. And they had planted flowers all around. And even though they were on the mountain, they had terraced their land. So they had dug out. And this area had these flowers. And this area had these flowers. And this area had these flowers. And I told that man, this is a beautiful home. You have done a great job. That man might be poor, and I hope he's saving all his money to give to his kids. That's a great thing to do. Do it. Save. Put your kids in school. Wonderful. But he kept on working. David does that kind of thing right here. He shows interest in every detail. But in verse 19, notice this. Where did the blueprints come from in verse 19? Who gave the blueprints? They all came from God. The Lord gave me these blueprints. He had me write it down. Solomon will need God's help. In chapter 28, verse 20, David said to Solomon, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with you. He will not fail you. Solomon needs his help. But this gathering was not for Solomon. It was for the temple. Because David is consumed with everyone. David is consumed with God, not his son. Oh, but Jehovah said, I'll build you a house. Then let Jehovah take care of that. I'm going to honor him with all that I have. My whole heart and mind is focused on the temple, on honoring God. The money. We mentioned this the other Sunday, so I'll just mention this briefly. In In chapter 29, verses 1 to 5, David talks about the money that it's going to take. And in verses 4 and 5, he lists the amount of money that he has given. 
He already paid 600 shekels of gold, millions of rands. And here he lists out, I'll just give you the amount in, in uh, 2020 rand. The gold, 20 billion rand. The silver, 3 billion rand given by David alone. What does that tell you? If you look at the amount of money that Solomon made per year, which is recorded in 1 Kings, I believe, chapter 11. It's recorded how much money Solomon made per year. And it said Solomon was the richest. So take about half of that money and multiply it over David's time. You find out that David gave almost everything he earned. But he has a lot of children. And in First Chronicles it says, I have many sons, but you chose Solomon. He doesn't pour all of his money into his boys. He gives it to God. And I can just see any of his carnal children saying, oh, what is he doing? That's not supposed to be mine. David says, sorry, there's something more important than my boys. You already see at the temple that he doesn't think about Solomon. That his dying day, he doesn't think about Solomon, he thinks about the temple. And here he doesn't think about riches and wealth. He gives it to God. Matthew 6.20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Luke 12, verse 33. Sell what you have. Get for yourselves bags that you can store in heaven. And then this is the fourth attribute of David's Great devotion. Look at chapter 29, verse 10. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. And in your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Children, open your Bibles. In these first four verses, David exalts God. Try to notice all of the attributes of God that are listed in these four verses. How many are there? What's the first one? Verse 10, God is eternal forever and ever. Verse 11, what's the next attribute? Quickly, quickly, verse 11. What's the next attribute? Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the and the, and the majesty. He lists all these attributes and there's more to come. In the first four verses, he just praises God. Do you think in our times of prayer, we have to spend a longer time thanking God for his gifts? John Hyde was a missionary to India. He was called Praying Hyde because he spent so much time in prayer. There's one time recorded in John Hyde's journals where he spent a whole day 
He was intending to pray for evangelism that was going on. And instead, he spent the whole day thanking God for all of his kindness to the missionaries, to the new Christians, to the church, to the world. He got to the end and realized, I haven't even asked for anything. Could you spend a whole day thanking God? David begins his prayer with adoration and praise and blessing. And then look at this. He, before he asks, 14, 15, 16, 17, he spends the next ver- four verses saying, I'm nothing. Look at verse 14. Who am I? What is my people that we should even be able to give this back to you? <laughs> Most men complain about giving money in the offering. And David, David says, here, we'll just give it all to you after he gives $23 billion. This is such an honor to be able to give 23 billion rand to you. You should throw it back in our faces. You shouldn't even take it from us. We're so pathetic. <laughs> Have you ever sh- Has your hand ever shook when you put money in the offering plate? Has your hand ever shook when you try to give money to a missionary? God shouldn't even take this from me. It's so filthy. Everything I have is nothing. Why would he take money from someone like me? That's what David says. And look at this in verse 14. All things come from you. And of your own we've given back to you. That would change the way we give if we really believed that. You own it all. David said in one of his psalms. You own the cows on a thousand hills. Count all the hills all through the Drakensberg. It's his. Verse 15. We are strangers before you and sojourners. The New American Standard says we are tenants. We just board here. We're just paying our board. You own the place. Just like our fathers. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. There's no lasting here. Nothing lasting here. Do you feel that about yourself? David did. And that's why he prayed that way. Verse 16. O Lord our God. All this store that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name comes of your own hand. It is all yours. Verse 17. I know also, my God, that you try the heart and you have pleasure in uprightness. David is humble. He knows that men are nothing. But then let me show you this. He closes with two prayer requests. If you're going to die, what would you pray for? Most of us would pray that we would be healed. Hezekiah, whom the Bible says was a great man, but not as good as David. When Hezekiah is going to die, he says, oh Lord, heal me. And God gives him 15 more years. You don't think David could have prayed, heal me? He doesn't pray for that. What would you pray for? That your children will be blessed? He doesn't pray for that. Look what he put. There's two requests. Look at the request. Number one is verse 18. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of your people and prepare their heart to you. What's the first thing he asked for? Put it in your own words. In verse 18, what does he ask for? What is that? 
that they would remember God. The New Living Translation puts it like this. Make your people always want to obey you so that their love for you never changes. That's not a perfect translation, but it's a perfect interpretation. What did David pray for? Oh God, make these people love you so that they never stop loving you. That's what a 75-year-old says who's been following God for 60 years. Make these people follow you like I have followed you. I don't care about anything. Take my life. I will be glad to go to heaven. But make these people follow God. Verse 19, what's the second prayer request? Give to my son what? A perfect heart. A new heart. My son will mess up unless you give him a new heart. That's it. Do you want to know why we pray for our children to have new hearts? Every Sunday morning, every Wednesday, or now Thursday night, David prayed for that. Every parent should be praying for their children. Oh, God, save them. Give them new hearts. And you see, God's got to give it. This morning, Faith said, what can we do? If it come, what can we do to, to, to get this kind of salvation? And Lloyd said what? He said it's the Holy Spirit. Exactly. And we can't control the Holy Spirit, but can't we pray? Can't we at least pray? David does it. He's an old, feeble man. His hands are shaking from the disease. He's going to die any day. But he stands up on those shaking knees, cold as he can be, and leans over the rail and tries to lift up his voice so the people can hear. And he knows they're not listening to me. Let me at least lift my voice to Jehovah. And before my voice gives out, oh God, make the people never to fall away and save my son. That's better than Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. David's life ends with an amazing closing. In chapter 29, look at verse 26. Why did I say that this is the closing of David's life? Look at verse 26. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel... And the time that he reigned of Israel was 40 years, 7 years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. Verse 28, and he did what? The last thing recorded about David is this prayer. This is the last thing in the Bible. He speaks to Solomon in 1 Kings 2. But I think this was after that. The last item in his life. The last thing that this book wants us to know. David served Jehovah. And he died. But before he died, he poured out everything he had in his heart, in his money, in his bank account. He gave it all to God. Louis Zamperini was a young man from California. He was a very fast young boy. 
And so he made it into the Olympics in 1932. He was tasked to run 5,000 meters, 5Ks, 12 laps around the track. He ran with all his might. And the last lap. There's how many laps? Twelve. When the man set, not this man, another man set the world record for the fastest time at five kilometers, his last lap was 69 seconds. World record, 69 seconds for the last lap in the five kilometers. Louis Zamperini was running, but he wasn't first. He was about eighth place. He got hit and jostled. At one point, a guy's elbow hit him. The last lap of this race, he moved up from eighth place to third, running the 12th lap in 56 seconds. That's almost physically impossible. It was so amazing that the entire Olympic Stadium in 1932 stood to honor him because of, I'm sorry, 1936, stood to honor him. He was asked, he asked for pictures with the heads of state and they gave it because they said, you're the boy with the fast finish. 56 seconds when the guy sets the world record at 69 seconds. What's the point of that story? 12 laps. He's running, but he's in eighth place. He says, I'm still in the Olympics. At least I can say I'm running in front of him. No. Let me pour out everything I've got in lap number 12. David did that. I want you to do that. He's not distracted. He pours out everything. 1 John 2.19 says... They came out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they came out so that it would be made clear they all were not of us. That, what that means is this. They started as church members. They started attending. But after a little bit of time, they thought, oh, this is too tiring. Let me quit. Matthew 10 verse 22 the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 3 verse 6. We are his house. Remember, he's building a house. We are his house if we hold fast our faith firm to the end. I skipped one word in that verse, Hebrews 3 6. We are his house if we hold our faith and our joy. Firm to the end. I close with this illustration. Joe Bisano is a pastor in America. When he was about 22 years old, he was finishing seminary. <coughs> he wanted to marry this girl. And so she invited him to his house. She invited him to her house. Her mother and father were there and her father was a pastor. So while the girl and her mother were preparing the dinner, the young man was speaking with his father-in-law, or the man who's going to be his father-in-law. And the man said to Joe, 
It's been my experience that, not one, that only one out of ten men who start when they're young continue as pastors until the time they're 60. Joe was surprised at that, so he took his Bible, and in one of the blank pages in the back, he wrote the names of 24 of his friends in seminary. Remember, he's about 22. When Joe was 53... He spoke with the author of the book, Steve Farrar. Joe and Steve were talking. And Steve said, I want to write a book about men and women who quit the Christian life. It's called Finishing Strong. You can borrow it if you'd like. It's an easy read. And Joe told Steve, I have a Bible. Look in the back page. How many names did he write down when he was 22? 24. At 53 years old, when the book was published, there were only three names left on the list. The greatest thing you can do in the Christian life is finish it. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, please come and help us to have grace and strength to finish the Christian life like David did. Please help us to persevere and not to give up. Please forgive us for inconstancy and weakness, laziness and lack of discipline. Please forgive us for being quick to give into our flesh. And Father, strengthen us. And Holy Spirit, make us eager and zealous to meet with God's people and to read our Bibles and to fight with our sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.